0: Every loss creates a void. If you try to fill it, you will fill it with garbage. If you let time fill it, it will be filled with normal stuff. If you don't let it fill, God will call out to you through it. Then you will begin the journey to embrace the void.
1: ever gonna make it back from the void
0: I suppose it was gonna be you oh well you know one man's void is another man's piece of cake
1: what about the reality we left behind what about the reality where Hitler cured cancer Morty the answer is don't think about it people assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect but
0: actually from a non-linear, non subjective viewpoint it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey stuff (laughs) language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 203 of Embrace the Void, where we've got new intro quotes. We were shooting for 200 for those, but it's a mom and pop void operation, so you know how it goes. I am your host, Aaron, and this week I continue my series of talking to educators about how to deal with conspiracism. Uh, a quick note, we had some minor issues with connectivity and progeny on this one, so apologies if some spots are a bit disjointed. Okay, before the theys get you, let's spread the word. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Mark Hufnagel, a proper doctor and assistant professor of surgery at Washington University and a skeptic activist. Mark, would you like to say hi to the void?
1: Hello to the void. All right. Thanks for having me.
0: No, great to have you on. We've been having a lot of great chats on Twitter, um, and I appreciated you coming on to chat about your side gig um, as opposed to your your main gig. Though I think we can talk a little bit about your um, main gig first before we get into the like skepticism side of things. Do you want to give folks a little bit of a background on your uh, sort of doctory side of things and maybe how that got you towards skeptical blogging?
1: Sure. Now, currently, I'm a, a assistant professor of surgery at Washington University in St. Louis, my specialty is trauma and critical care. But when I was in medical school, I was an MD PhD student and how I wasted my time, uh, was as I wrote the denialism blog mm-hmm. and, at the genesis of, of you know, my introduction into all this was with the creation wars and the attempt by the discovery Institute to basically use, um, debate over creationism as a wedge in, in their own words, in their own description, to introduce basically a religious concept back into schools. And at the time, you know, I was reading very broadly about all of these types of things. I was a physics major. I was very interested in global warming as well, because, you know, the way we learned about global warming is, in physics was like, this is just obvious. This is just the outcome of natural laws. Like You know, this isn't something that you can just simply deny. And I was putting together the pieces of how the, the different types of denialism worked from Uh, the Discovery Institute, to to global warming denialists, to medical denialism and uh, quackery, and seeing that they all kind of do the same thing and Mm -hmm. they function the same way and they use the same tools. And uh, I started writing about that. So I did the very kind of medical student thing to do is I I just wrote a clinical description of it. Mm -hmm. And the clinical description was in five parts. Uh, That was that you had conspiracy theory, cherry picking, fake experts, Impossible expectations or moving goalposts—you know, never accepting what's what's given to you—and then mm-hmm. finally, just you know, logical fallacies to fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. And uh, this this structure has since been kind of taken on. Interestingly enough, like the way I, I wasted my time in med in medical school is so far the most enduring thing I've added to the literature because <laughs> this was uh, introduced into the public health literature by Detelman and McKee, um, citing basically. Us, you know, saying that they, they right. came up with this helpful description of it, and this this was subsequently taken over by uh, several global warming um, communicators like John Cook, mm-hmm. uh, who's at George Mason now, and he turned it into the the flick description, you know, mm-hmm. starting with false experts and then going into you know logical fallacies, et cetera, the same thing, but ultimately the same structure, and then using it as a system to uh, to introduce critical thinking and to inoculate people against these tactics so that. Before you hear it from somebody who's trying to deceive you, that mm-hmm. you're aware that when you hear these things, you should be alert to it. And so that it's, it's interesting because, you know, now I see like that paper by Detel McKee, like cited in nature. And it's like, I feel like I've been incited by nature. I have uh-huh. been excited by nature. I mean, it feels like I have, you know, right. and it was what I did when I wasted my time in grad school.
0: That's cool, and I actually do think you see several versions of this kind of thing popping up from folks like Lewandowski and other like conspiracy mm-hmm. experts, sort of trying to parse the the key features. And I want to I want to dive into that list of key features, but there was a lot there, so I want to back us up a little bit and and work through it some. Now, um, first of all, I feel like after the past year, talking to someone who's a um, sort of medical practitioner and part of the medical world, I can't. I can't not start by asking, like, how how are y'all doing? How are things? How is the medical profession feeling about medicine at the moment? Like, do you have a sense of uh, where things are going to sort of go from here? Or is it still like a lot of people in shell shock? How do you how are you all coping at this point?
1: I, I feel like my experience on Twitter is different from my experience in real life. Uh, mm-hmm. I did some COVID ICU stuff. I was not like one of our prime people working on, on COVID ICU because, you know, we're still getting trauma, still getting all the other stuff. You know, you can't put that type of, you can't mm-hmm. put emergency surgery on hold. And so, you know, my, my three kind of arms, emergency mm-hmm. surgery, uh, trauma surgery, and critical care, you know, they're still present all the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, COVID definitely had big and dramatic effects on, on me and like the, and the kind of structure of our practice for a while. And we're largely we're largely back to normal, even though Missouri is starting to see a rise in cases again because we have uh, very poor vaccine penetrance in the um, in the more rural areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we held together really well um, uh, here at, at Wash U. Um, I think it really stressed the system. It showed us a lot of kind of uh, areas which were were stressed to the point where like we could see them breaking and it and. They didn't ultimately break, but like we could see how, you know, we were lucky; it wasn't much worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we were a very well prepared institution, and it was still very stressful. Uh-huh. So uh, I could imagine that an institution that is not as well prepared as mine and is not as well funded as mine, how much worse it was. So I think mm-hmm. I was on the lucky side of a lot of this. Um. I get this general sense from my colleagues that, you know, just the wear of the year of kind of constant work, inability to travel, inability to really have vacation, you know, for a, almost an entire year, I wasn't allowed to travel more than, you know, 30 miles outside of my city uh-huh. uh, because we basically needed to be constantly available, um, you know, lost basically all my vacation for a year, all that type of stuff. So that, that type of stuff definitely wears you down.
0: Mm-hmm. But, you, you mentioned oh, that. Okay. You mentioned that it was a different experience from on Twitter. I'm curious, do you feel like you've seen like the conspiracism stuff that you deal with on Twitter bleeding into the medical stuff because of, you know, the kind of COVID denialism and that kind of thing being at least enough in the news? Do you feel like practitioners that that's like an extra weight on practitioners minds as they're trying to go about doing this stuff?
1: It has been an introduction to uh, the problem for a number of physicians who generally are not aware of this. Because generally, when you go to a physician, you are there to ask them advice. And it is a self-selection process that you typically don't go to a physician to yell at them about some crazy bullshit. You believe you're there because Mm -hmm. you want to hear what they have to say. So we tend to get people at their best, at their most open and their most receptive. So to see what you know, anti-masking look like and, and anti-vax look like and all that, I think was eye-opening for a lot of physicians because mm-hmm. they generally don't have to see this stuff. And one of the things that I was really disappointed by in terms of our pandemic response and like, you know, people like me and David Gorski were shouting from the beginning of this: get ready for the anti-vaxxers. The anti-vaxxers are going to show up and okay. they are going to try to sabotage your public health, ep- you know, effort. Uh, What I was surprised to see was to see the uh, right wing um, embrace anti-vax, but also turn so virulently anti-public health Mm -hmm. Um, and the the anti-masking and just the overreaction to just like this very minimal collective effort. I mean, I didn't think Americans were actually quite this pathetic when it came to inability to engage in any kind of collective effort. But that that surprised me, too, like just like. You won't do this tiny, tiny thing to try to help protect your fellow citizens. It's like nope, too much. We can't well, there, do that here. There, I, there. I feel like I mean
0: some of some of it is like I don't want to do this thing. It feels like an imposition. But it, to me, I see a lot of like, you know, what what start. You know, what you see with uh, climate change where the politicizing of climate change has made it such that, that the the right wing individuals are just highly primed to be skeptical that like that was like the testing ground for this method where we're now seeing that like the right wing can, can politicize literally anything that they want and make it part of the culture war and thereby sort of produce this reactionary kind of behavior. So like big or small, it doesn't matter as long as they can, Key people up to see it as part of their political identity in this way. They can they can produce any kind of reactions they want. It feels like we're seeing that with the the CRT stuff um, as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. It, it's, that was a weird one though because that one was really coming very centrally politically. I mean, like all the way from mm-hmm. the top, is right. just really where that was coming from most of all. And that was just so disappointing. I mean, it was just such a pathetic thing that like. You know the leadership couldn't mm-hmm. be bothered to do like these basic things to protect us and back mm-hmm. us up, and you know support a public health effort. And I, I, I really believe that you know when when this is judged and fully sorted out, mm-hmm. we're going to lay you know several hundred thousand unnecessary deaths at the feet of people like Scott Atlas and yeah. Donald Trump. I feel and, like we will never lay it at their feet. All these people with that you. interfered. With. Yeah, but no, I, I you know with when like in the, in like the 20 and 30 years settled, like look back type of thing, Mm -hmm. we're going to see, you know, I, I think in particular like Scott Atlas is probably the most harmful position to have ever, Hmm. uh, ever been in this country. Like in terms of just sheer body count, you know, horrific, horrific anti-science behavior.
0: Right. I mean,
1: this is worse than, you know, Peter Duisberg and HIV AIDS denialism. Although, I mean, that's actually close. I mean, there's, there's people that lay about three or 400,000 deaths in, in Africa towards our exporting our denialism Mm -hmm. but we also exported this anti-mask denialism so i think Mm -hmm. to some degree you know the harm that we've had worldwide because we export our anti-science is an underappreciated thing is that like our our grifters they grift here but they also translate their books and grift elsewhere and make a lot of money on that and have a certain i think false sense of authority coming from you know american scientists and american doctors
0: right and this is a tricky thing to talk about because like I you know I I think it's really important to look at the system level issues that ele- that enable someone like Donald Trump right And the way that like you know decades of anti in education anti elitist anti um expert you know paves the way for someone so post truth as he is um but I, you also I think you know, without slipping into like a great man view of history, I think there's probably something to the reality that like, if Trump hadn't been the president during this, if it had been Pence, for example, it seems much more likely to me that Pence would have taken a more traditional approach that he would have not politicized masks, for example, and made it a big culture war issue, probably because he would have recognized that if he managed this properly, it would be a massive political coup for them. Um, But like, because we had Trump, and because Trump really does exemplify all of the kind of denialism stuff that you mentioned that we'll talk about. Like he took that ecosystem that had been primed and, and took it to like the darkest place imaginable. It seems like.
1: He's, he's interesting because he's not just somebody who spreads conspiracy theorists. He's also susceptible to them. Uh, he, he believes right. them and then he generates them. He's, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, Marenda Barkat, uh, interviewed me shortly after he was elected because I wrote this thing. It's like, so you've elected a conspiracy theorist, right? You know, I wrote this post and, and I got it. I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back too hard, but I kind of predicted a lot of his behavior Mm -hmm. because they behave a certain way. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important things that that they do is, is that they project what they would do um, onto others when, when Mm -hmm. they talk about what they think the powerful are doing they're saying what they would do, like when right. they allege all of these this terrible malfeasance. That's what they would do if they're given power. So it was very predictable to see, you know, after the way that he's talked about previous presidents and Obama and all that, that when he had his chance, he was just completely malevolent, mm-hmm.
0: um, and in very predictable ways. Yeah, and this this gets tricky again as well because I think you've talked about this. You and I, I think, are both. Kind of sympathetic to the new approach to conspiracism, which tries to, I think, um, de-emphasize intellectual deficit or mental illness as, like, the driving forces, especially amongst, like... The rank-and-file individuals who are getting sucked into this stuff. But at the same time, when you look at the leadership, when you look at folks like Trump or like folks like Brett Weinstein or James Lindsay, all of these people who are sort of doing this conspiratorial grift, it feels so hard not to see sort of malignant narcissism as being at the root of a lot of their kind of performative behavior and the way they kind of you know, look to their audience as they spin that conspiracy dial and see how much applause they can get. So, like, I don't know how you, to- wow. you I like totally the drill reference. It. Right? Like that's I mean, <laughs> basically literally what they're, what he, you know, you can watch Trump doing it where he like yeah. will throw it out and see, does that, does that trigger that limbic response that I'm trying to get from people?
1: Um, I mean, that, that tweet is like kind of so wildly real, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, in terms of the way people behave, just like that kind of manipulation. Mm -hmm. Um, this goes back to like a lot of the, a lot of, uh, interesting communication science, I think a lot of psychology, Mm -hmm. and I think we've developed a better understanding of where conspiracism fits inside of human psychology. For one thing is it is a default heuristic. It is part of the way that we think about the world. It's like something that has to be trained out of you, not trained into you. Mm -hmm. So most people, when they encounter something that is not congruent with who they are, their identity, what they believe, their first sense is just to immediately reject it. It's just mm-hmm. the way that we're built. You know, like this doesn't fit, you know, if I have to believe this thing, like who I think I am is going to change. No one's going to do that. No one's going to take an existential, you know, threat regularly as, you know, like a, a piece of information. So you come to a creationist, you know, who is you know, deeply invested in the belief that the Bible is literally true. You know, something that just doesn't work. Like there's lots of reasons it doesn't work. Uh, we can't build ladders to heaven. You can't fit all, you know, the, the any, you probably can't fit even like a single, you know, smaller division of all the animals on earth on a single ship. You know, all of these things like kind of fall apart, but it's important for a certain type of fundamentalist uh, to believe in that's literal truth. Mm-hmm. So what happens when they come across a piece of information that for them to believe they would have to break their entire system of belief,
0: they mm-hmm. just reject
1: it. And, you know, the way that we reject it, we reject it in similar ways. And that's actually how denialism happens. It's those ways, but also the ways that you can manipulate others into feeling comfortable with with rejection of facts. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you have to appreciate about denialism uh, in terms of a of a tactic is that it works in two directions. There's the people that believe it and the people that spread it. I feel more strongly about one than the other. Like it's easy mm-hmm. to believe denialism. It's identity congruent. Makes you feel good. Makes you feel safe. Makes it feel like you don't have to, you know, introspect about things that are deeply held beliefs to you. But the people that spread it, I, I have, you know, a, a lot more contempt for because they usually know better. Um, it is a manipulation tactic. It's it's mm-hmm. kind of working these elements of people's psychology that they're very susceptible to. Uh, and I think ultimately, especially with regard to conspiracism, is extremely malignant, because conspiracy almost always has a target. That target is being slandered or libeled, uh, and it is used to direct hate at people. You look mm-hmm. at the ways hate campaigns have existed throughout history, like from pogroms to the the last century and uh, World War II and the Holocaust. The basis of these were conspiracies about you mm-hmm. know. Control and power, and uh you know this kind of deep-rooted anti-Semitism uh, that all conspiracies somehow ultimately gravitate towards. It's, mm-hmm. it's like just this strange attractor for conspiracies. And conspiracies eventually, you know, you scratch deeply enough, you find, you find anti-Semitism constantly coming up. There's this kind of sure. you know denialism that unites them all. It's the but, air conspiracy. You know, what they were doing, what they were doing is, is they were you know saying that you know our, our power, our, you know, Germany was betrayed by these people. They wield all the power the protocols of the elders of Zion. In the end, conspiracies are an extremely powerful vector to direct hate at people. And I think if we had more of an appreciation for that and made conspiracism itself a social death, like, oh, you're a conspiracist, gross, you know, oh, you're telling conspiracies, mm-hmm. why don't you just, you know, shit on the bus already? I mean, it's gross. We shouldn't mm-hmm. tolerate it. It's bad behavior. And it's natural behavior. Sure. It's a way that we tend to go. But like it should be similarly discouraged, at, you know, like the way we toilet train people. It's like, yeah, no, no, no. That's not the way we think. That's not the way grown up people think. That's not the way good people
0: think. Well, that's that's, is, a, that's a tricky natural, issue, but... but it's definitely unhealthy. I mean, well, this is a tricky problem on the application side. Right. I see a lot of mixed discussion mm-hmm. about like what is the best method? to get people to stop being conspiratorial is it positive or negative reinforcement essentially and there's a lot of stuff that suggests that like shaming and and stuff like that especially once the person is hooked in is more likely to be sort of harmful or produce blowback and then you have to really like soft glove the kind of uh to get people out of it or something whereas there might be at least at least some evidence that um if you sort of can get in there before they they believe something and be like, no, this person is is way far out there and like completely an unreliable resource. You can get a little bit of like um, inoculating them against it. Um, you also mentioned their religion, which is another like factor that pops into this a lot, because I think and not just religion, but grand narratives more broadly. So we could include nationalism as well. When you have these systems of grand narratives, There's going to be data that conflicts with the grand narratives, and so it's going to necessarily, I think, bring about this methods of denialism. Do you worry that like that nationalism and religion are sort of fairly easy cognitive on ramps towards conspiracism and denialism in this way?
1: Absolutely. And as a physician, I'm obligated to say that you know prevention is the best tactic, the best way to get people to avoid. Mm falling in this way is in, to some degree, critical thinking education. I would say that the way most of us are trained in terms of critical thinking is extremely flawed. I, I don't think it's done particularly well. I don't think that we actually even managed to successfully train most scientists to be critical thinkers mm-hmm. because it's an extremely difficult thing to do. Uh, it requires a lot of introspection. I, for instance, I think the most important thing, if you're going to be a critical thinker that you have to do is when you come across new information that, uh, that, is kind of been packed for big. Um, one of the very first things you have to do is you have to interrogate your own feelings. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like counterintuitive. Oh, facts before feelings. No, <laughs> your feelings are very important because the way you feel is going to influence whether or not you will incorporate that fact. It'll It'll change your engagement. You want to manipulate people. You want to turn off people's brains, make them angry, make them feel a certain way. Make them, you know, pissed off, make them or, or flatter them, you know? So if you're like, oh, this piece of information makes me feel good, you should almost instantly distrust it. So like one of the very first things you have to do is you have to interrogate your feelings about things mm-hmm. because uh, the, the key, the first key, the first step of manipulation is to access people's emotions. So if mm-hmm. you sense that a piece of information is making you emotional, you need to interrogate that feeling. And you have to figure out why that's happening, and whether or not that's impacting, whether or not you're being biased towards that piece of information. Is that mm-hmm. piece of information making you feel good? Well, yeah, people will totally flatter you to make you believe something. You know, mm-hmm. you, you see it when these, when these people write their books, you know, like, like Murray does this with like, you know, the, the bell He flatters the reader. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, not very many people. You're probably already smart because you're reading this book because not many people. Right.
0: You know, the guru boys point this out I mean, as a common feature as well, too, the the flattering your, your readers for understanding what other people don't.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, it's it's just, it's just such obvious manipulation. But mm-hmm. the thing is, is that we're never trained in that. We're never trained in kind of like a, a, a careful emotional assessment about the way we feel about information and how that Means that we end up incorporating it in our lives because we want to make believe things that make us feel good. We want to be enraged at an enemy and be right. You know, that kind right. of vindication, that, that power that you feel like, oh, we did something good with our anger. You know, that's this is like endorphins like rushing into your system. You know, mm-hmm. we love this stuff. And right. so when people are feeding you anger and when they're feeding you um, uh, uh, flattery, that, that should be one of the very first things that raises a red flag. Even before you get to what the information contains, mm-hmm. you have to interrogate the way it makes you feel. Well,
0: this is something and I think really that's been... something
1: that's missing from a lot of critical thinking education.
0: Yeah, this is something that's always been interesting to me because I certainly spend all, more of my time engaging with what I think of as kind of hyper-rationalist conspiracy bros. And... Weirdly enough, they all, almost all, but many, tend to be big fans of Jonathan Haidt, especially The Righteous Mind. But, like, if you read that book, it's all about how, like, we are these incredibly emotional, sort of fallible cognizers, and that, like, if you're not doing what you're describing and, like, interrogating that stuff at the outset instead of uh, instead of like what people i feel like often do which is sort of see themselves as being already past that like they've already interrogated it and they've done away with their emotional attachments and now they've kind of achieved this sort of pure rationality um, which to me just feels like so often that they're just skipping that first major step
1: yeah and you know hate i i feel like you know he he has made a couple of good points and then subsequently mm-hmm. for like the rest of his career failed to incorporate it in like he, almost <laughs> everything he writes. You know. He's so disappointing. I it, know. He, he's it's extremely disappointing. He kind of writes the same article over and over again. He writes a lot of these articles that I hate the most, which are like these kids these days articles. It's I like, know. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: And not with the kids these days. I mean, days coddling articles. the American it's like mind the is it's a whole
0: book of that article. Basically.
1: Yeah. And it's total, total BS. The kids are fine. You know, the right. problem is the goddamn
0: adults. Right.
1: With you know, everything the problem around is the, the people that saw climate change coming for fifty years and did nothing about it. Mm-hmm. The ones who set up the system that is, you know, creating this divide. So yeah, millennials can't buy a house. Millennials, you know, are being criticized for you know all of this type of stuff that is completely out of their control. They didn't make the participation trophies. <laughs> that was the right. rumors made them and gave them to us. Right. So it's it's kind of and they did it because that, of like, their you know, narcissistic of,
0: trip, right? Not for our sake, but because they needed to have the kid with the trophy. Like, that was their yeah. power trip. And here we are all. And now, and now they're
1: angry at the children that they raised.
0: I know, I know. It's <laughs> so if there
1: was a problem, one, it's your fault. But two, they're not a problem. <laughs> right. Millennials are wonderful. I, I work, and one of the great things about medicine is, like, you're working with young people all the time. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. And it feels weird saying that because I still think of myself as young. But, you know, like, I'm working, like, with... 25 year old medical students and they look so tiny.
0: Right.
1: And, you know, they're, they're absolutely hilarious, but they're wonderful. And as much as people kind of like try to drum up fear about this generation, it's like, oh, you know, they'll, they're so woke and all that. It's like, no, they actually have a really healthfully attuned sense of justice. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're terrified of that, like, ah, uh, learning sign, you know, right. <laughs> I, I don't seem to have a problem interacting with them. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's part of it is that if you're if you're not kind of a source of malignancy, you really don't have anything to fear from people who kind of have learned how to bond together and kind of fight injustices and kind of mm-hmm. have a sensibility that is that is towards self protection, which is very mm-hmm. healthy and been missing mm-hmm. from medicine, let me tell you.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. So let's let's get back to diagnosing denialism, since that's at the root of a lot of what we're talking sure. about here. You took you did this uh, denialism blog and I, I want to um, you, you gave us your definition already there. And I think I'll I'll add I think you mentioned at one point it's something like the employment of rhetorical tactics to give the appearance of argument or legitimate debate where when in actuality there is none, which to me is very similar to the like. Definition of debate porn um, that we've talked about on the show previously, Um, Mm -hmm. but I also before we were talking on the show, I asked if you were continuing with the blog, and you started to tell me a story um, that I think is worth worth sharing for its pure voidiness. So, um, oh, why why are you not continuing to do uh, your current um, uh, denialism blog, Mark?
1: Well, part of it is that you know I, I am trying to advance my career and not waste Mm. my time. But the other problem is, is that the, uh, the real estate of science blogs Mm -hmm. is now owned by an AstroTurf group, the American council for science and health. Uh, these are, uh, a, they're a group. They're, they're actually one of the best. I gotta say, I gotta give them credit. Mm -hmm. They are so good at AstroTurf because they put out a lot of legitimate scientific content, you know, they, they have like these websites that Mm -hmm. very science communication promotion, blah, 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 blah. Looks great. They're, you know, pro vaccination, but you know, when it comes to anything about, um, any chemical company, you know, any, Mm -hmm. uh, anything that has to do with an interface of industry and activism. So like soda company, soda tax, blah, 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 right wing, right wing fundamentalist you know, absolute mm. economic fundamentalism. And uh the, the most damning uh piece of like their wedge document uh piece came uh when uh Trump first got elected and they wrote this article basically saying oh this is gonna be great for science you know all mm-hmm. of his choices to run these scientific agencies oh these are all great people this is gonna turn out just fine and so like they they haven't deleted it yet which you know is too bad because like I, I turned this into like You've never seen a better piece of evidence that this is an astroturf or organization that doesn't care about science, and it is both true at the time and it has been validated. I mean, the mm-hmm. very first person to go down in the Trump administration was uh, there um, was uh, the he was an orthopedic surgeon from Georgia. His mm-hmm. name Price. Uh, yes. And yes. For, for ethical failures, right. and it was he was totally crooked. He be, he belonged to this crazy group of right wing crackpot doctors uh, mm. that is it, it, they are so they're so toxic that in his senate confirmations they were clearly like desperate for their name not even to come up <laughs> you know because they it, it was it was he, they're, they're you know. anti-vax they try to link things like uh, abortion and uh, and breast cancer like they're just liars and they're awful And their believers, their ideology that's behind it is this kind of right wing economic fundamentalism, this Mm -hmm. free market fundamentalism, which is similarly toxic. I mean, as are all kind of ideologies, all ideologies are ultimately garbage and don't kind of describe anything perfectly. Mm -hmm. You should Mm -hmm. always be suspicious of all of them. But that's a particularly bad one that doesn't work. this was Man. this was a terrible article. And these people now own science blogs. This is this is, this is who, who owns oh. it. And I, I have this article about how they're astroturf on their own real estate. So I feel a little bit proud that I'm just I'm still there just a little bit of, you know, maybe just a little burr, uh-huh. causing a little irritation, you know, but I can't
0: access it. And I can't write anything more. anymore. I see. And it clearly doesn't matter because they're continuing on with all of their um, effective behavior. Man, imagine being the first person in the Trump administration to make it across the ethics violation, like finish line. That's oh, that is quite a. a it, it wasn't even <laughs> subtle.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, it's like the classic, like, I'm just going to use government resources just to pay for like vacations and travel and all. This. And it's come on. It's like basic stuff. These people are so incompetent.
0: Right you mentioned a the term there that I think some folks might not be familiar with it. I want to unpack here a little bit, um, and I think maybe you could tie it to our friends, the Discovery Institute, who have brought us um, Chris Rufo, who's now bringing us our current moral panic. so you, you mentioned wedge documents what do you what is a wedge document, and can you give like other examples of this
1: So the wedge document uh was is a reference to a very specific thing that came out of the Creation wars where uh, multiple times they showed their hand of what they were actually up to. So the thing about AstroTurf groups is like, they say they're doing one thing, but they're actually doing another. They say that, oh, we're just interested in, you know, educating the youth and exposing them to the full range of blah, blah, blah. It's like No, 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 no. You're trying to introduce creation in the schools. So the wedge document was them actually failing to keep control of one of their initial guidance documents where they were saying, we are mm-hmm. going to emphasize teaching the controversy. Every single place where we can get get you know that in, we were gonna use that as a wedge to drive in creationism into you know elementary education. So it became mm-hmm. the wedge document, because so they use this word. We're gonna we're gonna use this kind of to wedge our stuff in. They also very famously um, at one point they had a textbook of intelligent design. This was just the funniest damn uh-huh. thing. <laughs> uh-huh. And they just did a fine they did a find and replace for creationism. Uh Uh, And just put in intelligent design into the middle of it, which created the flaw that, you know, if if it didn't actually fit creationism perfectly, you ended up with things that sounded like C design proponents, (laughs) you know, (laughs) where like they they screw up the find and replace. So you could see like the grammatical construction of that creationist used to be here and it just didn't quite fit perfectly with it.
0: They didn't use the whole word uh, find and replace. Whole phrase find and replace. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah. So you know, here Rufo is doing this thing where you know it's very clear that the um, the goal is to uh, interfere with uh, mm-hmm. a reckoning on race. This is retrenchment, right? The, right? the critical race scholars themselves, I was I've been introduced to them now because I never really knew about them before. But now I'm reading their stuff; they're very interesting. And seeing Kimberly Crenshaw saying like, "Oh yeah, this is typical. This is retrenchment. This is what happens right. after every time you make progress. There's this pushback." And this is the way that they're leading this pushback, and they're saying that oh, we're actually anti racist they're the real racists. Yeah, bullshit, always bullshit. And what mm-hmm. they're doing is is they're uh, they're saying that they're doing one thing while they're doing another. Classic astroturf, classic Manhattan Institute bullshit. Mm-hmm. And you know, you guys are now getting introduced to like what the global warming. Uh, Folks had to deal with, and what you know, uh, evolutionary biologists had to deal with, and like multiple times now throughout my life, I've I've seen these kind of various like moral panics where they try to say, "Oh, you know, the global warming, the environmentalists—they're just basically trying to implement Marxism through environmentalism." Blah blah, same same thing every time. It's like second they start blaming Marxism, it's like, "Oh yeah, that again? How cute, right?" It's 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 you know a joke at this point to me because they they employ the same taxes, just just keep working, you know, it's crazy, but anyway, so you're, you're experiencing what it's the fun of being the focus of a, of a group like the Manhattan Institute and the Manhattan Institute. Oh, sounds like big and impressive. Oh, they've got this name that has a city in it. And, uh, they have this office in DC and they wear suits to work and they seem like they're, you know, big and important. They produce reports. Oh, wow. They have a report. They're the worst scholars you've ever seen in your life. All of all of these think tanks produce the shoddiest scholarship. It's just the the flimsiest patina of you know intellectual or academic credibility is being put on top of mm-hmm. total garbage that would never survive peer review. Like mm-hmm. I recently did an ecologic study and I was subjected to statistical peer review, and you know my ass still hurts. It's really very hard right. to go through real peer review, and. You know, this is you you look at, at the reports and you just see just immediate like obvious stupid flaws, failed use of statistics, access manipulation. You know, they're, they're just frauds, mm-hmm. but they're very noisy frauds and they look like they're legitimate and they have these offices that are fancy and they have all this money. So they end up on TV, mm-hmm. they end up on, you know, the, the talk shows, they end up on Bill Maher. I mean, they sound important. So people
0: believe they're important. Right. It's really a remarkable phenomenon. Yeah, and it makes me pretty miserable because I think it works more than it should. Like I think that like the truth is always at a like tempo disadvantage, and in especially in the like post truth environment. So you're I want to go back and just list your ingredients for denialism here. We've got conspiracy theory, cherry picking, false expert, moving the goalpost, logical fallacies. Anybody who spent any amount of time on Twitter will know. Everybody accuses everybody of all of these things, and there's no there's well, no this is way one of the things that that very good at. Is like... they
1: will take the language of, of skeptic and yeah. they'll eventually reflect it back on you, and so they do that over and over again. So like right. one of the things I see Lindsay and all them doing is they, they accuse other people of being conspiracy theorists when in reality, I mean, like who is alleging the of conspiracy theory that there is this you know tiny group of academics like the people that have like the least power in the world, like academics are pushing this neo-Marxist conspiracy to like totally destroy Western civilization through, you know, slight modifications of K to 12 education. (laughs) I mean, it's so stupid. I can't even believe anybody takes it seriously. It's obviously a silly conspiracy theory. And Rufo, you know, is, is, you know, kind of a pretty classic fake expert. Lindsay's a classic fake expert, you know, a world level expert. Yeah. Whatever. You know, has never published anything on anything of any significance. And, uh, So like, so there, you know, you've got your fake experts, Mm -hmm. Uh, the cherry picking, you know, they take these like little events from around the country that, you know, often fail to survive even Mm -hmm. basic scrutiny about like what actually happened. Uh, You know, moving goalposts, like there's no amount of evidence that would ever convince anyone who's been convinced of this stuff that it's not actually happening, you know, now, like once, once they kind of end up in the cycle, it's self-perpetuating and you can show them, he's like, no, like, look, this is what these authors actually write about. None, nothing here is mentioned. It's like, oh no, it's not true. You know, it's like there's no there's no level of proof that you can provide them that'll dissuade them uh, now that they've right. a- adopted an ide- ideologically fixed position. And then what are we missing? Logical fallacies, tons of them all over the place, you know.
0: Right. Too, well, yeah. too numerous to mention. It does remind me a lot of the like Carl Rove approach, where it's like if you think that you're susceptible to an attack, like lob it at your opponents first and louder, so that when they try to lob mm-hmm. it back at you, they just look like they are, you know, weak and repeating back the same accusation you just raised. Like attack where you're weakest because there's no there's no cost to it, right? There's no. Downside like people like James Lindsay are you know have gotten if anything vastly more successful the more that they lean into the kind of over the top you know conspiratorial um, catastrophizing Um, so I just like what, what worries me is that this this approach to politicking is necessarily endlessly escalatory, right? Once you've started down the track of saying my opponent's plan to murder all of you and your children, like it's hard to walk that back. And we've been seeing that with the GOP for like decades now. And I think, you know, the the um, insurrection on on the Capitol Hill was like one boiling over of this pot that they've had sort of boiling and, and, and pressurizing for this entire time. And it just, I, I guess I'm worried. I'm curious what you think. It feels to me like the pressure hasn't gone away and like Trump losing hasn't like diffused any of this and that we're just going to continue to see more and more escalation as the GOP remains kind of trapped in this toxic relationship with the, um, the, the base that they have created.
1: I, I'm of two minds about this. One, mm-hmm. yes, conspiracism as a way of directing hate at people is ultimately a way of directing political violence at people this is how you this is how you get people to rise up and you know you fundamentally you are dehumanizing people you are saying you know look at like uh q you know you're saying my mm-hmm. opponents aren't just you know politically not aligned with me they are baby eating satanists mm-hmm. like once you truly believe that you are empowered to do anything to anybody right you know that if you if you truly think that that's okay to spread you know, you are a bad person. I'll just straight out say it. Like, if you're spreading this stuff, you're a bad person. Mm -hmm. You're a bad person who is encouraging other people to become bad and do bad things that are violent and horrible and terrible and dehumanizing. And this should just be unacceptable. This should just be right out. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you know, we we have had a a shift in our politics where this type of behavior has become more acceptable. The weird thing about it, though, is, is that, you know, if you read the history of this stuff, like, so if you read, like, Hofstetter and uh, mm-hmm. anti-intellectualism on the American right. This is if anything kind of a return to form. Uh, mm-hmm. we had a, a brief period from about 1950 to about nineteen ninety-three, uh, where I think there were Republicans that uh, you know, were statist, kind of interested in making things work. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think that was a reflection of the Cold War and the space race. And, you know, once Sputnik went overhead, all of a sudden, you know, those stupid nerds in college were suddenly like, oh, wait a minute. We need you guys, you know, because Mm -hmm. things are getting hot. And uh, as a result, there was probably an increased appreciation for intellectualism that we grew up with that is gone and is never coming back. And I think this is a bit of a return to form. If you, if you look at Hofstadter's book, you know, he describes these attacks on Thomas Jefferson, like the guy running against Thomas Jefferson sounded exactly like Trump. He was calling mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson in a feat, you know, limp-wristed intellectual, you know, uh, he was basically calling him a sissy. Right. And, and like, that was, you know, we, we, think of like the founding fathers in like this kind of glorified light. And it's like, no, they had to deal with the same nonsense, these same people. Slander, lies, conspiracy, BS—that I mean, this nothing is new under the sun. Mm-hmm. And if anything, we were actually just experiencing a brief period uh, of increased intellectualism and science guiding our government that ended very abruptly with Newt Gingrich in 1993, the destruction mm-hmm. of uh, the Office of Technology Assessment, the <laughs> removal of a scientific uh, expertise as a as a method of guidance for legislation, uh-huh. all gone, eliminated, gone. And that was, Gingrich really kind of brought us back. He kind of righted the ship of the right towards this uh, uh, paranoid, what what Hofstadter called uh, the, the paranoid style.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's, and that's interesting. I, I think we're back to it. Yeah, yeah. I guess
0: I, 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 oh, that's an interesting timeline. It sort of gels with some of the things that I've seen, but I also like that's the same period in which you have the rise of the Southern strategy, which to me is a writ large conspiracy theory. And like, I think I agree on the aspect that there is a different level of sort of anti-authoritarian, anti-government conspiracy that starts to come to life in the nineties with folks like Cooper and Jones and oh. such Um, that, that reshapes the right to some extent. Um, but at the same time, I wonder, I also wonder how much of it is that like there was more, pro-government right-wing conspiracism back when they they had a more strong hold like a racist hold on on the government broadly speaking right that like they could see the government still as a method of maintaining the the sort of racialized framework that they wanted to see in the world and as that sort of slips away from them right as it becomes harder and harder to overtly use governmental tools for those purposes they become increasingly anti-government and start to see the government more and more as the mechanism by which the evil individuals are forcing change on society do you think that like that is some of like because you also do see the anti-intellectualism during that period you see the the conservatives leaving academia and starting all the think tanks that we're talking about here now um because academia was this hotbed of uh, socialism and communism and postmodernism, just like we're talking about right now. Um,
1: I, I would say it, it seems like it seems that way, but only mm-hmm. only if you don't go back far enough. So mm-hmm. one of the things that Hofstadter does, he's got a great simple essay um, on the paranoid style, and one of the things he does is he basically sees the same complaint that you just described,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: he shows it in 1960, and then he shows it in 1900, then he shows it in 1850. And it's always the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, our country is being taken away from us. You know, mm-hmm. we, we used to be, you know, this one thing, and now these people are here to destroy it all. And like, you could even just fast forward it another 50 years and put CRT to slide it right in there. You know, it would fit with right. Hostetter like perfectly, this is like two form. So if, if you want to like read, uh, you know, an, an essay written in 1964, that sounds like, you know, he had a time machine. Mm-hmm. Oh man, mm-hmm. read that because it, 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 and it's just informed by history. It's like this is just a very successful type of argument that works with people. People always feel like, you know, their situation if it's suboptimal is due to them having been wronged, rather than anything having to do with you know themselves or anything internally. It's much easier and much more uh, pleasing to hear that it's somebody else's fault. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of that manipulation strategy. Is that like this is a piece of information that people like to incorporate because it, you know, it condones whatever you know terrible decisions they've made in their lives, and you know, puts the blame squarely with somebody else, especially somebody they don't like.
0: Yeah, and I'm so let's talk a little bit here before we run out of time about like is there anything to be done about any of this? Because I'm I'm really struggling with like depression of pessimism about. Um, This issue so for example like I feel like we're trapped between folks who say that like anything on the internet should be fair discourse and that like people can just sort it out for themselves. But at the same time, as you've mentioned in other places, that like they are deeply opposed to teaching critical thinking and critical theory and stuff like that in schools because they correctly recognize that it is a threat to their kind of intellectual hegemony. Um, I, I just feel like we're getting the, the worst of both worlds and it's all being driven, I mean not like all, but like 90% of it's being driven by like right-wing political fear-mongering for, you know, political purposes. Mm-hmm. And I just don't see how we avoid being dragged along by as a country by this kind of GOP conspiracism spiral. Do you do you feel like you're optimistic about any approaches to um, breaking this this feedback loop?
1: I mean there's there's a reason why I'm not a surgical oncologist. You know? <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, this, this is like this is like fighting cancer. Uh-huh. You know, this is a this is a part of humanity. This is part of like our construction and our heuristics and the way that we're manipulated. And people are never going to stop pulling these levers. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just a way to easily access our minds and make us behave in a way that, you know, we're all just angry monkeys, like yelling at, you know, the other, you know, we're just, it's just our eight brain limiting us. And it's always going to be with us. And what you have to do is, is, you know, it's like cancer. It's like a thousand diseases. You can't mm-hmm. cure cancer. I hate it when people say, oh, we're going to cure cancer. Like this is a mm-hmm. cancer. Is nonsense. Cancer is a thousand diseases. You know, you can't say that like, oh, we're going to cure that. It reflects a fundamental misunderstanding about what it is. We're going
0: to cure viruses. And this is the same
1: thing. Yeah, I mean, this is is very similar in a way to cancer. It's kind of built into our biology. It it manifests itself in a thousand different ways. So it's Mm -hmm. like a thousand different denialisms, you know, and there's not like going to be a simple solution. We're going to go bang. It's it's just going to be something we're going to have to fight all the time across multiple generations, for the rest of our lives, for the rest of our children's lives, and for all of their children's lives, until we fundamentally fix the biology of how we think. So, you yeah. know, don't, don't be discouraged by that. Just become a surgical oncologist. Be like, I treat cancer, you know?
0: Right. It, it is hard.
1: I... I, I, I feel like I'm getting way more discouraged as a trauma surgeon these days, because, damn, I mean, what will take our country... Uh, mm-hmm. what will it take for our country to learn to do something about, about gun violence when, you know, we right. know, we know that, that there are solutions and things that will work and just death after death, after death. And I, I, I start to get discouraged too, because, mm-hmm. um, very fundamentally, I feel like nobody cares about my patients and, um, my patients are predominantly black, uh, predominantly poor, uh, predominantly young men, um, who, have, you know, no good options mm-hmm. and uh, trying to get people to have empathy for this patient population and see how our policies are just killing them generation after generation
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: uh, and working in a, in, a, in a role where, you know, I'm, I'm basically kind of treating these social determinants of health that are out of my control.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's very yeah, discouraging. And, and, it kind of burns you out. So, like, I mean, I, I get mm-hmm. it and I, I want these things to change, but I realize that, that 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 doesn't mean that the struggle isn't valuable and that there isn't, you know, worth in trying to continue to try to put people back together and try to and kind of hold the fort.
0: Yeah, guns is another one that I feel like slots very easily into this conversation because the pushback. To gun control is this same absurd level of conspiracism about how the government is going to come and take your guns so that they can then put you in FEMA camps or something like that. There's just and that 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 kind of propaganda makes it just impossible for us to have a functional conversation about this to the point where, and again, I feel like many of us have just given up like after Sandy Hook, like. If that's not going to do it, it seems like nothing's going to do it. And of course, what you saw after Sandy Hook was the very famous sort of trutherism about Sandy Hook. So, like, I just don't see how we can ever, ever get results on, on so many of these different kinds of issues. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning... um sort of t- teaching critical thinking. And this is something that I see a lot in the education literature, because of course is like education folks. We're trying to figure out how can we educate people to make them more resistant to this stuff. But I'm also just very skeptical about that as well. I think not just because it's so baked into our psychology, uh, In the way that you describe, it seems to me even if we could like really successfully, as you know, like more successfully than we're managing to right now, train individuals to be more critical thinkers, they're still just at a massive disadvantage in the epistemic environment that we are throwing people into. And that like if we're not serious about fixing that systemic level, you know, epistemic crisis, no amount of education of individuals, it seems like, is going to pull us out of it. So, I mean, like, for example, do you feel that there should just be much stricter rules about deplatforming of conspiracy theorists on social media that just, like, uh, we just shouldn't, you know, anybody like James Lindsay who is promoting anti-globalist conspiracy theories should just be banned from these platforms? Or do you have any sense of, like, what kind of systems-level approaches might actually improve the situation?
1: Um, I, I try to approach this from kind of a very humanistic standpoint, because, like, In the end, what would, what will fix this is just all of us trying to be better people, um, Mm -hmm. you know, understanding that like, this is like, these are human flaws, these are human flaws that are being manipulated. They're being manipulated by people that have, um, incentives to manipulate them. And really the way through it is not to, I mean, we're we're not gonna, we're not gonna educate our way out of it, Mm -hmm. you know, because. Every generation is going is to have, you know, the people that are, are going to do this, and it's going to be in various sizes, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, the size of this, uh, this movement is going to, you know, vary on how well we've done probably with these generations' education. But to some degree, it's not really educatable, or it's extremely difficult to train people not to be susceptible to this, because it's just a very human behavior. So instead, what we have to do, I think, in the end, is just kind of be better people, just try to tell people that, yeah, no, you, you shouldn't be hateful, you know, like, mm-hmm. and this is one of the ways that people are hateful and it may make you like feel a certain way, but this is how, this is how we address hate is that we, we don't engage in, in conspiracism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that you have to, to kind of address this very kind of early on, like as kind of a behavioral thing and, and as a way for all of us just to all become better on all sides of the political spectrum, just say, Hey, you know, let's, Let's let's not be bad people. Let's not engage in conspiracism, and mm-hmm. you know you're never going to be able to fully you know clear all platforms of this stuff. I think you should still try. I think mm-hmm. it's you know again this is like fighting cancer, right? You know you have to just doesn't just because it's difficult doesn't mean that it's not worth keep plugging at it. Just because it keeps coming back doesn't mean that there isn't a value in continuing to fight it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you know suppress this kind of really bad, pathologic, antisocial behavior everywhere it comes up any way that you can with the goal, not of, of winning an argument, not mm-hmm. with being right, not saying that my side wins, but with the goal of just making us all just better people and not accessing this thing that, yeah, it's part of all of us, but it's kind of a bad part of all of us. And and all mm-hmm. of us, our side, your side, every side, we should not do this stuff because it's, it's hurtful. It's bad. It makes us bad people. It makes other people bad people. Can we all agree that we should try to be the best people we can be and i think that's a much more um uh a successful argument in terms of saying like no this side is wrong it's engaging conspiracy you're bad it's like no, no 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 this is this is a way to manipulate people that we should all find unacceptable and well, it's not about my side being right and about deplatforming mm-hmm. people i disagree with we just shouldn't be, be- being awful to each other this way
0: well, what you were saying there brings in another sort of system level element that I think um, doesn't often get enough attention, which is, you know, a lot of this stuff arises for political reasons and like the political elements are very significant. But there's also a major capitalist element, I think, here now with the Internet and the, the rise of um, social media as a um, commodifiable resource that like, you know, there's so much incentive for f- folks like YouTube to keep platforming people like Weinstein that, like, you have to, they have to go so far over the line before they will face any kind of repercussions. Um, because you know they're making money for these people, and like to demand these companies sort of work against their profits, and and they, like these companies know that if they deplatform somebody like Brett, right, he will take some number of people with him in protest or something, and like there's a there's no upside for YouTube, right? YouTube doesn't benefit in any way. I don't think there's like I feel like there aren't probably a comparable number of people who are re- refusing to use youtube right now because of someone like brett who will suddenly start using it again when they find that like brett has been demonetized so like do we just need to you know legislate in some way to change to require that like uh youtube and such you know uh, that we we can find them or something is it is it involve rolling back the protections of the platforms themselves or like, do we have any sense of how to start to clean up these environments based on these perverse incentives?
1: Did you read uh, Carl Bergstrom's paper on this? Um, I think he published it. No, I a haven't. Couple weeks ago, and it's basically like it was. It was kind of almost like looking at it like from a public health em- epidemiology of like, yeah, creating an incentive structure where you know,
0: roughly mm-hmm. like thirty years ago or twenty
1: years ago, when, when these media were building up, we we basically created only one incentive, which is ad clicks, ad clicks, ad clicks. So just getting eyeballs mm-hmm. as the central kind of focus of of the of the business model has resulted in all of these perverse outcomes. It's
0: mm-hmm.
1: very, very interesting and, and, and just basically kind of ultimately ties. Yeah, it's like this is it used to be if you were a crank, uh, you could, you know, maybe irritate your local newspaper editor.
0: You know, mm-hmm.
1: now you can irritate the world, you know, with with your crankery. You can be, right. you know, the star of the Internet for a day. And that is definitely different.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't think it's, it's going to be in the end like world ending or I, I ultimately have optimism for, you know, that the next generation uh, will adapt and get better at this than we are because I, I believe in the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- that's what's going to have to change is it's going to have to be a cultural change because there's real, really no honest way to legislate it. And ask, you know, anybody who, who grew up in a, a communist country who can't stop. You know, you can't stop the media, you can't stop sharing of information, people figure out ways to do it. Mm-hmm. And now that they figured out how to do it, they're not going to stop. You know, they'll, they'll do it one way or another. So I, I think ultimately we have to change us, we have to change, you know, the, the way we culturally think about these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically discourage this from a, a behavioral standpoint, because realistically, this, you know, the cat's out of the back on technology and social mm-hmm. media. We have to find other mechanisms and it can't be uh, it can't really be censorship or or legislative because it's just not the way our country is constructed. Hmm. And it's probably not effective. I, th- I, think, like, I think the platforms themselves, I, I actually kind of trust capitalism to take care of the model because we're going to be way faster at applying economic pressure on these companies. Hmm. And it's going to be far more flexible. Than trying to get our government, which can't do very much when it's constantly in stasis, you know, expecting our government to do anything, especially right now, is mm-hmm. not very realistic, sad to say. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not for, you know, the deadlock that we have. I think that we actually should be doing more stuff. But realistically, there's not going to be legislative solutions to this. So, mm-hmm. what powers do we have? We have economic powers. We can apply, you know, we can apply the strength of our wallets and our voices. And you know, corporations ultimately are responsive to that too. And this will just be part of the never ending war against, you know, bullshit, bad people, hate, conspiracism.
0: Yeah, and I'm curious to see how things will go, because there, there is an open question, I think, um, empirically about whether the sort of digital native generations will re- be able to like cope differently with this sort of stuff because they grew up around it. Uh, my sense is there's some evidence that suggests that they are not, in fact, sort of inoculated or in any way more resistant to it merely because it was around for their entire lives. And I also worry that... The situation with stuff like climate change makes it very easy to slip into a kind of post-truth nihilism where it's like it can feel like less and less matters and that can include things like claims about the truth um, and that can, you know, spiral people in one direction, whereas other people can, you know, there's also the concern that individuals who are genuinely marginalized and i think it's fair to say the you know the future generations are because of our dealing with not failure to deal with climate change more marginalized individuals are at higher risk of conspiracism so in a sense we are making it very easy to slip into that by doing a bunch of terrible things that look sort of loosely like conspiracies to prevent any you know addressing of climate change right you're just making a world in which this conspiracism seems more justified not less um, do you worry about that at all?
1: No, I mean the, in terms of you know people being marginalized, that maybe there's like a, an increased likelihood, but it's not like a one-to-one type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the the data on the kids are that the, the the kids are actually doing pretty good in terms of acceptance mm-hmm. of you know climate change science. They're doing better. They actually tend when when you study the way that they use the internet, they're more savvy about scams. They're more savvy about privacy. We think that they're bad at privacy. But the people who are really bad at privacy and really bad at scams are the boomers. They're the ones that fall for all this type of stuff. And, you know, they're the ones on Facebook spreading this nonsense. I actually think Mm -hmm. that as one generation moves forward and another moves out in terms of political primacy and power, I think we're going to do a lot better because they have grown up with this. And the data shows that they're handling it better. They're more savvy about it. And uh, they actually are Mm -hmm. more accepting of science. So I, I really is, it is, I, I hate it when people get angry at the kids and say, you know, oh, these the kids these days, really, it's the adults these days. This has been a terrible generation mm-hmm. in terms of like the American dream and the idea that you should make the world a better place for your children. I feel like that skipped a generation. You know, we had one generation that mm-hmm. really pulled the ladder up after themselves and is not leaving the world a better place. Uh, but I am optimistic about the next generation and their seeming desire and optimism and willingness to try to fix the problem and maybe carry that forward. All right, but, fair enough. You know, well, let us end on an optimistic note then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair. You know, that's I, I brought Gregory, the doom and gloom. Yeah. No, nope, that's uh, yeah. Well, let me let me ask you one more very very quick question. Um oh, do you, sure. th- I see a claim sometimes that I'm curious about your thoughts. Do you think it's true that everybody believes at least one conspiracy theory or do you think that is a sort of misunderstanding of the that it might be, might be better to say everybody is at risk of believing conspiracy theories?
1: Certainly, everybody's at risk, and you know when it comes to just probabilities, chances are that you probably at least got one under there that you under the hood that you're maybe not fully aware of is probably a conspiracy. I guess theory. the reason i little skeptical I learned something this that claim. I believe for a long time isn't true, but not necessarily conspiracy. But you know, conspiracism is built into the way that we mm-hmm. think, and especially if you have a particular ideology. You know, ideologies. Uh, you know, I, I really like uh, George Box. You know, the statistician. He said, you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Right. So, great mm-hmm. philosophical way to think of the world. It's like every single thing that we construct, our political ideology, our, phil- our philosophies, our economic uh, you know beliefs, they're all models about the way things should work, but they're just approximations. They're all wrong. Nothing is actually mm-hmm. perfectly descriptive, perfectly right, perfectly applicable to every si- situation. Um, and the result of these incongruences between whatever ideology you choose to adopt and the real world will... That will result in kind of conspiratorial attitudes it's like oh it's just that way because these people are you know you come up with this excuse for why this thing that's very central to your thinking and your beliefs mm-hmm. isn't wrong you know mm-hmm. it's something else it's something external it's not me so i think absolutely yeah we're all susceptible and if you if you really kind of interrogate me you'll you'll probably find out that i have really negative feelings about veganism <laughs> and i would i will, i'll believe anything bad you'll say about veganism I guess no, the reason I'm a little... That skeptical, is my identity congruent, you know, believe.
0: Right. The reason I tend to be skeptical of that claim is because I, I really strongly believe that once you, you know, once you pop one conspiracy theory, it's very hard not to slide into other ones. And so I don't think there's a stable mm. state that a person can exist in where they hold a single conspiracy theory and don't tend to slide, um, which leads me to think that, like most of us are just like teetering on the precipice of buying that first conspiracy theory uh,
1: that's tied to extremism. No, I totally disagree. No, okay. like, you, you can absolutely believe single conspiracy theories, you know, very reasonable people might believe like one funny thing, like how many people believe that JFK is a conspiracy and Jesus, that is a stupid conspiracy. They you want to talk about stupid conspiracies that a lot of people believe, you know, the, the argument for, for guilt in this case. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's a prosecutor who wrote a great book about this called Reclaiming History, uh, uh, Bugliosi. It, the, the argument for Oswald's guilt is incontrovertible, you know? Mm-hmm. And then consistently you see the conspiracy theorists, they constructed this web of lies about magic bullets and all this, all to- total bullshit. And we have like movies that people believe and like have real actors, like JFK directed, uh, you know, glorifying. The Alex Jones of his day, Garrison, was this awful monster who Mm -hmm. basically was like grinding a political axe against local homosexuals and who never won a single case. The only case that, that he was involved in that resulted in a successful prosecution was against him for libel. You know, like he was a monster. He was a total piece of garbage. And like we elevate these people because like, yeah, that was such a big event and it was so huge in all these people's lives. And a lot of people believe just that one. But whether or not you're going to believe more and you're going to slide that way has a lot to do with your ideological extremity. And it's there's Mm -hmm. a chicken and an egg thing happening here, because on the one hand, (laughs) the ideological extremity uh, will make one susceptible to conspiracy theories. But then the conspiracy theories will also funnel you down to increasing ideological Mm -hmm. extremity. So I think that's probably what you're seeing. It's it's not Mm -hmm. it's not so much. Uh, whether or not, like, ah, uh, conspiracy theory is safe. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's like the funnel model of, uh, of advertising. You know, lots of people, you know, make do like a single click, but not everybody's going to put a uh, uh, an mm-hmm. item in their shopping bag, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, then as you get, you know, the item in the shopping bag, maybe that person's going to be more likely to sign up for your newsletter, which makes them more likely to, you know, like sign up for the weekly deals. And, you know, and it's that funnel model. They draw mm-hmm. you in, and yeah, eventually you start to see an acceleration for some people. But it's a stochastic model.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fair. I think that's a really good point. Um, so I appreciate your your pushback there. Um, I could I could go on with this with you for forever. I feel like, but we got to wrap it up, and I've got to torture you. Um, so no, no Let's uh, let's get to the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So here's what's gonna happen. Um, for folks who are not familiar, I'm gonna give you a list of things and you're gonna tell me, are those things real or not real? Those are your only two options. You can't hedge, you can't explain what you mean. It's just real or not real. Sound good?
1: Well, I mean, I just talked about George Box and like real. Can I change it to useful? <laughs> Is it a model uh, no, that's no. useful?
0: Nope. I'm, okay, I'm not head, allowed to. In okay, your head, well, you can do whatever you want. In my want head. <laughs> yeah. In my head, I'll be doing that. Great, so. Um, First of all, just to get things checked out here, do you believe that anything is real? Yes. Okay. So let's figure out what is real. Is the external world real or not real? Yes, real. Colors, real or not real?
1: Absolutely real.
0: Phenomenal consciousness? Oh, you'll have to remind me of that one. That's the uh, belief Your inner states of awareness... um, you're having a mind that's thing. yeah yeah um yeah i think that's real okay free will real selves or persons real genders real races not real species real morality real Rights, real knowledge.
1: Uh, that's tough, <laughs> interesting. Real, all right. I mean, like, you know, what is that's a tough one, but yeah, I'll ultimately go for real. But okay,
0: yeah. God or gods, not real. Society, real money, real. Numbers, real. Fictional characters, not real. Holes, like a hole I guess in the could ground, be real to some
1: people. Yeah. Uh, that's a really interesting one. Holes. I mean, what isn't a hole when you come to think of it? But I guess it's real. I mean, it describes a thing that's useful. This I'm call real. Sure. Okay.
0: Chairs, real. Sandwiches?
1: Oh, man. That's, like, come into major contention in the last few years. Uh, I don't think they're real.
0: Okay. Science? Real. Natural laws?
1: Uh, not real. I mean, are you talking about, like, natural physical laws, or are you talking about, yeah. like, these this belief that there are these, like, fundamental things, like, we should behave this way or that way, blah, blah, blah.
0: It's, I believe uh, in physical laws, but natural laws, yeah. Uh... Okay, <laughs> uh, not real. Not real. Okay, beauty.
1: Um, not real.
0: Love. Mm, real. Causality. Real. And finally, time. Oh, super real. All right, it's like you one have thing survived, you can't change, man there you go. How do you feel? I was surprised there. um, Most people do not have as much trouble with knowledge as you did. That was a sticking point for you there.
1: Well, I mean like knowledge, I'm just thinking of that. It's always sunny. meme. you know, science is a liar sometimes. Uh Uh (laughs) And The the reality is, is that, you know, like we we tend to amend knowledge rather than ultimately kind of uh, reverse knowledge. So it's probably, mm-hmm. in the end, it, it might be real, but I don't know. Okay, um, <laughs> Fair enough. I think about like what I thought was it. true when I was beginning my medical training and now versus what I believe now. It's like, oh, man, knowledge. Mm-hmm. Not very reliable.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's All nice. right. Well, Mark, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on to have this chat. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your stuff one more time?
1: Sure. Uh, I am at Mark Kufnagel on uh, Twitter. Uh, You can read my archives at the AstroTurf uh, website science blogs. Uh, And uh, I publish in uh, various scientific literature. I have an article recently in Contraception about the uh, risk of um, anti-abortion legislation on maternal mortality and how it predominantly affects uh, women of color and uh i'll be publishing a number of things on gun violence as well as some uh, basic science research and various journals coming to you
0: okay great well thanks so much for coming on i really appreciate it it was a lot of fun as a human i was ill-equipped to thank you but as myself you have my everlasting gratitude thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible as always thanks to our top tier patrons our archon level patrons lawrence shielding dude FixTheVote, CampQuest.org, 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 Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and Cormot Orkman on Twitch. And all of the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter, at pod and... If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. Pod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com/slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early accessed episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, through our endless connections. You are the void, and the void is you.